Hello, welcome to episode 30 from podcast, Help with Parkinson's, where our goal is to have the best quality of life possible. Our guest today is Dr. Supermanian, movement disorder specialist from Hershey Medical Center, and I'm your host, Warren Butfinick. Welcome to the show, Dr. Sue. Hi, Warren. Thank you for having me again. Sure. Thanks for coming. So uh, we're going to be discussing a, uh, a new study on an old drug, levodopa. Dr. Sue, do you want to go over the study? Right. So this uh, came out about two weeks ago, and uh, this study was published in a very famous, uh, well-known journal called the New England Journal of Medicine, and it made the press and news. And this had to do with um, how they did prospectively study patients who um, were given levodopa or pervidopa, commonly known as uh, cinnamon. Uh, and uh, the reason to do the study was that despite um, accumulating considerable data over the years, there has always been a fear that if levodopa is used, it might produce uh, toxicity. Uh, it might cause the disease to uh, get worse sooner than later. Um, this study uh, proved what was already well known to many of us, and we have been changing our practice for the last 20 years, but some have been resistant to it. So this article and the editorial that came in New England Journal of Medicine uh, related to this actually put to rest uh, any concern about uh, this particular uh, idea. So um, let's go over what the results of the study showed. Uh, they examined a very large group of patients who received carbidopa levodopa and what they discovered is that in this large population, despite following them for many years, they did not see any evidence of neuronal toxicity, meaning the, uh, the uh, cinemat or carbidopa levodopa causing more damage to the brain or to the person than what is uh, normally expected for their uh, age and sex. It also, it also showed that their mortality, the number of people who passed after um, having the carbidopa levodopa was not any more than what was, um, what was expected for their age and sex and so on and so forth for the uh, patients that were on, um, on this particular study. Um, and, um, the, the other aspect of the study, which is equally important to point out, is that um, although they studied a group of 445 uh, early Parkinson patients and they waited for a very long period of time, um, uh, 40 weeks or more, which is almost a year, and watched them very closely, they didn't see any evidence of neuroprotection either. Um, so in other words even when they um, wound up watching the patients for another year, a second year, they still didn't see any evidence that the medicine delayed the progression of Parkinson's disease or slowed down the progression of Parkinson's disease. So in a way, it's a bittersweet news. The first news is that it is, doesn't cause toxicity, is, is important and, and, and good, but also... Um, uh, it is uh, a, a story that has a bitter end in that carbidopa levodopa does not 
uh, slow down the progression of the disease. So it's a good study. It's an important study. It, it added more weight to what was already kind of well-known in the field, and most of us in the field have already made the changes, but yet um, there were a lot of people who were resisting because the previous study that was also published, by the way, in the New England Journal of Medicine called Eladopa study, which came many years ago, almost 14 years ago, uh, was not uh, as clear as this particular one. This study uh, cleared up any kind of doubts that, that might have been there. Um, and, um, and again, it was done in a different uh, country. It was done uh, not in the United States, it was done in Netherlands, which again uh, gave credibility because it's another population, a different population got the exposure to it. There are some negatives for the study. Uh, if you looked at the uh, population that they recruited, a good number of those patients were a um, bit older than what we would see in our population here uh, in, in the United States, which indicates that at least in Europe, uh, it appears that either the diagnosis is delayed or medication start is slightly delayed. Um, that could be the reasons why the population was slightly older. Uh, the other uh, thing that is also pointing out to the same uh, problem is that uh, the patients, majority of them were already in stage two by the time they came into the study. Again, a little odd because you would expect uh, some stage one patients to be enrolled, but they had a good majority of the patients in stage two, and they even had a few stage three patients enrolled. Um, and these are supposed to be brand new diagnosis or early diagnosis that needed to be enrolled. So one would think that um, stage one would be the, the kind of patients that come in into such a study. But having said that, um, having stage two patients may have been one of the reasons why the neuroprotective effects of levodopa was not well, well seen. In, in other words, had you start levodopa earlier in stage one, perhaps the protection, protective effect could have been more obvious and that wasn't picked up in this particular, uh, particular case. So it's kind of like the um, summary of what was published in this paper. Uh, let me pause there and ask uh, Warren to uh, give his thoughts. Yeah, it was an interesting study. The way they, uh, they, they had half the people use the drug and half the people not use the drug for about a year. Mm-hmm. And they really thought that the people that started first will, will, would constantly be better than the people that started second. Right. It ended up being the exact same place. Right. So that was kind of interesting that they, they were really hoping it went one way and it went completely the other way that showed no difference delaying therapy. Right. So that was, that's the, uh, the disappointment for this study. Right. But the good, the good thing about it was nobody, it didn't harm anybody. Correct. So it kind of, like Dr. Soup said, it, it's no different than what he's been prescribing for a while, but that just sort of, Put it, put it down on paper. Great. And one little anecdote that I like to recollect here, a few years ago, approximately five years ago, some of the scientists in Canada visited an African country. I believe it was the country of Chad, which is in North Africa. 
And this is a country where very little um, care is available for Parkinson's disease. And in fact, I think the story goes that they had only one Parkinson doctor for the entire country. And it's a country with several million people. And what they had discovered there, that a lot of patients there were diagnosed with Parkinson's disease very late. And um, many of them were prescribed uh, Parkinson medicine, carbidopa levodopa, because it happens to be the cheapest medicine. And many of them couldn't afford it because, first of all, it wasn't available. A, B, even if it was available, it was somewhat expensive. And um, less than half the people who were prescribed the medicine uh, got a chance to uh, actually take the medicine. So what these investigators did was they assessed people who were taking it versus who were not taking it sort of uh, uh, undesigned design study. In other words, it wasn't designed to be that way, but circumstances forced some people to be able to take it and some people not to be able to take it. And then um, they actually provided free medicine for everybody. So now everybody could take it. And then they examined what happened to these patients over a period of one year. And interestingly, they found that the prevalence of dyskinesia, the involuntary movements that occurs as a result of um, carbidopa levodopa exposure was exactly the same. In other words, people who took it more recently and people who have been taking it for a while had no much change. So really, it, it made the case that the dyskinesia or side effects that you get from carbidopa levodopa is really not related to the number of years that you've been exposed to, but the actual degree of uh, Parkinson's that you exhibited. The more severe the Parkinson's, the higher the risk for dyskinesia. And it wasn't really the duration of the treatment or the amount of medicine that was being given to, or even um, the, the erratic way in which these African patients actually took the medicine did not seem to make a huge difference in, in the incidence of um, dyskinesia, arguing that uh, delaying treatment doesn't really give you any advantage, but uh, taking medicine uh, on a timely fashion and taking it on time and keeping that steady state is probably the most important thing to um, allow patients to have a good uh, outcome in the long run. So interesting sidebar, it had nothing to do with this particular story, but I thought it's worthwhile remembering that particular story as well. Okay, in that uh, article, they talked about that Parkinson's is a related group of diseases and each subtype is triggered by a different cause. Right. Is that something to do with that study or is that just in there? Right. So uh, it's there because of um, several things. One is that, you know, a small minority of Parkinson patients, less than 5% of patients have known genetic causes of Parkinson's disease. And this particular study they didn't do anything to remove the genetic forms of Parkinson's disease out of this. So it's possible that a, a small proportion of these 400 some patients were actually genetic forms of Parkinson's disease. So in theory, it could be about 20 or 25 of those patients were um, belonging to the genetic form of Parkinson's disease. And why they would be, behave any differently from idiopathic Parkinson's disease uh, is is that we just don't know. We don't have enough data to do that. That's number one. The second problem is that um, because the patients were followed only for about two years, 
uh, maybe a few years longer because by the time the publication came out, they were followed for a few more years. There's always a small chance that other types of Parkinsonisms, like for example, Parkinson plus disorders, multisystem atrophy or progressive supranuclear palsy, which have other pathology going on. Uh, so for example, PSP has a few other uh, proteins that are abnormal besides the Lewy body, uh, presence of Lewy bodies. They also have tau protein and other proteins that are abnormal. Same thing with, uh, with the uh, Lewy body disease. Although it's primarily alpha synuclein that's abnormal in Lewy bodies, there's other pathologies that are also noted in there. So because the patients were not followed long enough, there is a small chance that uh, a small percentage of these patients um, could have other illnesses beyond beyond that. Uh, but then again, that's part of any uh, big study. But they were pretty careful. They did uh, screen patients carefully to make sure that um, they do well and that the, the, and they did get some pathology, as as you noted, that they did get some pathology in some people who passed. So. Um, this is uh, still um, better than what we had before. And I think it lays to rest at least the notion that uh, levodopa should be avoided. I don't think that's any, uh, true any longer. Uh, so if there are people who are still uh, stragglers who say, well, I don't want to be on levodopa. I, I only want to take dopamine agonist and wait until I really need it. So levodopa sparing is really not indicated. This study put to rest that particular idea that levodopa sparing is actually needed. So I think that's the big point here. Mm -hmm. Good. And we got some time for uh, to go to another one here. Yes. Sort of like pop culture in the news right now is Linda Ronstadt has been on the news a lot talking about her Parkinson's and uh, not being able to sing. Right. Want to talk about that, Dr. Sue? Yes. Um, so again, I, I don't know Linda Ronstadt's music um, as well as perhaps Warren. You could you could talk a little bit more about her uh, music. I'm, I'm personally uh, not familiar with her music that much, but I do know she's a uh, she's a standout musician with uh, lots of hits in the field. Do you want to briefly uh, uh, tell about her music career? Again, I'm not uh, super familiar with hers. Uh, she was just somebody famous from the uh, 70s, okay. 70s and uh, into the 80s. And she, she was, uh, I think she may have been married to the uh, governor of California at one time. I see, I see. Okay, so... Um, just taking the generic question uh, and beyond uh, Linda uh, herself about um, voice changes and musicality uh, and the ability to keep a tune uh, and how that's important in, in Parkinson's disease. So uh, high-level musicians who are people who um, have wonderful vocal repertoire and their repertoire goes through the entire range of uh, human voice, often being able to sing from a very low tone or bass voice to a very high, high-pitched tone uh, in a matter of milliseconds. And also doing it in a way that is very pleasing to the ear 
is a skill that requires a lot of different things. Uh, number one, your vocal apparatus, which is the machinery that produces sound, has to be completely intact and in fine tune. Uh, let's just briefly review what that involves. First of all, it's your lung, which has air and oxygen and uh, air movement across your vocal cords. And the vocal cords is located in the larynx, which is in your throat. And uh, while this uh, air goes through it, it also has to be modulated once it exits the vocal cords. And that's controlled by many things uh, beyond that. This includes your parts of your mouth, your lips, uh, a little bit of your tongue movement, and the back of your throat, what we call the palate, and uh, the nasal passages to some degree, and the air coming out through your nostril also plays to some extent how your sound that you produce comes out. So for example, who have people who have stuffy noses sometimes have a nasal voice or they lack a nasal voice if some other parts of your vocal uh, voice uh, tract or sound tract is, uh, uh, is not very well uh, controlled. Furthermore, we also need feedback. Um, so if our hearing is bad, uh, if we don't hear what we say or what we speak, then the amount of feedback that we get is also abnormal. That actually also causes poor voice modulation. So indeed, for good musicality and being able to produce high-quality music, you need the apparatus, the machinery that produces sound and gives us feedback to be intact. Beyond this, you also need your brain to be intact because uh, music does come from the brain. And as many of us know, uh, music is all about emotion and how much emotionality we are able to produce, put into our uh, voice production. So the more emotional you are, more you're able to appeal to uh, the audience, the more powerful the music is. And much of this is about how we express our voice and bring it that emotional content to it. Um, in, in many cases, in performing arts, if a musician is actually performing or actually singing in visual contact with their audience, then in addition to producing a voice and having the brain to produce good music, it also involves gestures, movement, uh, facial expression. All those things become important for actual performances as well. And many a time the audience can relate to a person's facial expression as they sing where they bring out the emotional aspect of music as well. Now, as most of you listeners here would appreciate, Parkinson's disease affects all parts of this, uh, this vocal machinery for musicality. One of the obvious things is that uh, many Parkinson patients have lack of facial expression, reduced facial movement, and that for a performing artist can be a major handicap because they're no longer able to express the emotions that they are wanted to use when they are singing. Although uh, in early part of Parkinson's disease, uh, in the first stage one and stage two, luckily when uh, people have to express emotions, uh, they do uh, manage to uh, show that very well. So especially in a very heightened state of emotionality, generally speaking, Parkinson patients do manage to show expression in that stage of the game. Now as the 
disease gets worse in stage three, for example, when bilateral disease and it's already affected a little bit of your balance, it might be harder to show expression even in the most highly emotionally charged situations. Um, you may not be able to show the emotionality that you need to show. And that might uh, affect your musical performance or any other kind of performing arts. Now, uh, when we think about the brain and, and also the vocal apparatus, um, again, unfortunately, as Parkinson's disease advances, voice becomes low, meaning you, you're not able to produce high uh, volume sound. The volume becomes low, so you almost have a whispery tone. And that's because the vocal apparatus is not able to move as much air as quickly and as efficiently as it needs to do because those muscles become slow and somewhat lethargic in their ability to move air uh, properly. Now, if you're properly medicated and you take your Parkinson medication, especially carbidopalavidopa, which, which remains the uh, most potent drug, and you take it on a timely fashion, you could time it well such that your vocal apparatus is functioning optimally at least for short periods of time during the day. So every, um, every time you take the medicine, you at least have two hours of good musical vocal production is there. Finally, uh, as far as the brain goes, brain function, again, is important for musicality. And uh, this is related to how we can naturally sing. So in other words, if you are singing um, by looking at the words on a piece of paper without memorizing the words, or if you're looking at a um, video screen where the words are being projected, uh, like a teleprompter, and using that to sing, then... Um, the the emotional content, the naturality of the music seems to be somewhat devoid. And you probably notice that in singers who are not as talented as some of the most talented people who able to produce musicality that is natural or it sounds very natural. They're able to sing it in a way that um, they're not looking at a prompter and the emotions of each of the words or the sound that comes out is really um, tangibly appreciated by the audience. Now, for that to happen, uh, we uh, depend on what we call uh, executive learning or executive motor functioning. We've talked about this in other contexts like driving or riding a bicycle or playing a musical instrument. We have talked about this in a previous program that that seems to be the hardest thing that is affected in Parkinson's disease. In other words, things that you would do naturally without having to think about it and do it in a seamless way are the ones that seem to be affected by Parkinson's disease. So because that is so very important for high-level musical artists, uh, this is something that they notice right away. Uh, when they start singing or playing a musical instrument, they notice that that natural flow uh, or that little emotional aspect where they are able to improvise on the flow is sort of devoid or it's not there, and this become they become self-conscious of it. Or sometimes others notice that they're not as kind. Uh, this is particularly true for artists who improvise all the time. Like, for example, jazz music, where improvisation is the key, um, the ability to improvise on the flow becomes harder to do. It's less noticeable when you're uh, performing fixed pieces of music where you're just simply following the keys and written music is just being um, performed, which does not require that type of ingenuity or 
or uh, cleverness or uh, creativity to be shown. So it may not be that much noticeable if you if you play a piece of music that is standardized and it's not uh, subject to any changes. But even there, uh, an astute listener may be able to tell, an astute singer may be able to say that, ah, it's not natural, it doesn't come out well. So uh, this story is relevant to another story. But before I go to the another story, I want to make sure this long uh, description about uh, difficulties with music came across okay. And Warren, you have things to say before I tell you what the answer is. Yes, she actually described her voice as freezing, right. sort of like uh, people have with their legs. Right. And all of a sudden, she wouldn't be able to make a, make a sound. And uh, she also, it also said here that she used collagen injections. Do you know what that would be for with the voice problem? Right. So, um, so two things. The freezing of the voice is similar to the freezing of movement, uh, exactly like you said. And usually indicates that she's not able to maintain the levodopa steady state levels that you require for this to happen. So that's one thing. The other thing is over time, if your vocal cords and they're tiny little muscles that are in the vocal cords, they're called the adductors and the abductor muscles. They sometimes when they're not used well, uh, cause the surrounding tissue, what we call uh, the fascia that goes over it or the mucosa that goes over it to become a little bit thicker or thinner, one of the two things. Uh, if that happens, then the amount of vocal cord movement becomes feeble. It doesn't move as much. And in order for us to make sounds, the vocal cords have to move. Um, the wider they move, the longer they move, the, the better it is. You can make longer sounds and hold a pitch, for example, for a long periods of time. You need to keep that vocal cord open or uh, closed tightly closed, depending on what kind of sound we make. So for example, to make the sound ah, like a, a series of A's, ah, uh, like that, you need to keep the vocal cord separated out. And if you want to make the sound E or a long E like that, then you have to keep the vocal cords uh, closed or very uh, tight. Both of those are important. And so there are certain sounds where you have to open it up and certain sounds you have to close. So depending on what kind of sound you're making at any given time, you will need to make the vocal cords move that way. And since the muscle movement is slow or delayed, just like any other part of your body, the vocal cord movement also becomes hard to do. So then one way to stiffen up the vocal cord is to go in with a microscope or laryngoscope to go in and visualize the vocal cord and then inject into the vocal cord small amounts of collagen. And collagen will stiffen up the cord so that now its mobility will be a little bit more stable. It won't be feeble movements. The movements will become a little bit sturdier. It's effective only uh, in that unique situation where your vocal cord movement has become sort of softened or it's not moving as steady as you can. And that will help you produce more sharper sounds or louder sounds. Generally, that's reserved only when you have a physical damage to the vocal cord, and that usually happens after many years of disease. But again, um, talking about high-quality musicians like Linda, who will notice subtle changes in their voice and sound much more easily than a normal Parkinson patient, 
then in that case, you know, we're talking about uh, very detailed and very minutiae of changes uh, that uh, somebody like her would uh, complain about. But for ordinary purposes, most, most of us just talk and most of us do singing as an amateur, not as a professional. For those purposes, um, collagen injection is not really indicated. What is indicated, and that's the next story that I want to just sort of jump into uh, so that we give uh, people some hope for this, is um, there are a lot of speech therapy that is available. One particular method is called the Lee Silverman technique. Uh, Lee Silverman is a speech uh, pathologist who uh, described how uh, a series of very productive speech exercises can be used to improve quality of speech and um, what we call abdominal speech. You can actually allow the air to go into your abdomen and then meaning into your stomach and then um, bring the air out and allow that air to provide a little bit of uh, additional force for the for the sound production. Even though it doesn't come through the vocal cord, it actually uh, allows what is produced in the vocal cord to be amplified because that additional air power that you can produce that doesn't come through your lung actually helps you make the sound a little stronger. Uh, that's one technique. But uh, most interestingly, and most uh, this is something that I've been advocating for many years, and I think many of my colleagues have also been advocating for many years, is that actually singing, uh, and especially group singing, choral singing and singing, uh, improves uh, Parkinson's disease voice. And this was another study that was uh, recently completed called Sing PD. They, they actually tried to give patients a exercise where they would sing by themselves. But then another group said, okay, wait a minute, we don't want them to sing by themselves because many of them won't be motivated to sing. So let's do group exercises. So they did group choral singing. It's a small study. It's only 27 patients who were included in the study, but they came for choral singing um, uh, twice a week for one hour, uh, and they sang together. They sang, sang common songs that uh, people know, uh, and even if they didn't know, they were easy-to-learn songs that they sang together. And what they found is that uh, it increased their vocal repertoire and their voice became a little stronger and their uh, breathing, what we call vital capacity, their ability to hold the breath and exhale enough air through the lungs actually improved as well. Um, their uh, vocal cord strength became stronger and uh, they also measured the, the sound production, how much sound do they produce, the the, the what we call decibels that you can measure how loud you can produce your voice and that also improved so suggesting that um, there was some improvement with singing and interestingly they had to continue this for um, at least two months and doing it for six months actually was better than two months so two hours of singing uh, per week uh, for six months seemed to have a real dramatic effect and I personally, uh, in my experience working with people who complain about their voice being low, I actually tell them to sing every day rather than uh, to sing twice a week. And my recommendation is that you sing as loud as you can. Uh, and if you need to use karaoke videos because you don't remember the words, that would be just fine. You can get uh, your favorite music 
played on television with the background music and the words showing up. This way you don't have to memorize anything. You can just uh, sing using the words that are there on the screen. And then you also have the cheering effect of the background music going along. But you do need to sing loud. Uh, there's no point in singing in your head. And singing in the bathroom is okay, but still needs to be loud. And singing for an hour, or at least half hour, I think will um, make a huge difference. Uh, now, of course, you're not going to become a professional singer like Linda. Uh, that requires a lot more than, um, than uh, this type of an exercise. And if you are a professional singer like Linda, then bringing her back to what she used to be before is also a, you know, a big take and, and big ask. But for ordinary people who are not professional singers or just amateur singers, uh, practice and more practice and rehearsal every day uh, would actually bring back your voice uh, to the degree that you can manage most things. And also your voice would get better. So this way um, you would get that benefit. Finally, it also helps with swallowing and drooling. So people who drool, if they strengthen their oral musculature and their swallowing function becomes better, they won't drool as much either. We, we talked about this in another program where we discussed drooling, but this comes back to the idea of singing every day um, for at least half hour and if possible for a whole hour. Um, this may be a good way to make progress. Um, we are uh, starting on some research programs. We're actually going to put together a research program here at Hershey to evaluate uh, singing abilities and how singing might improve other functions in Parkinson patients. Uh, there'll be more about this coming in a future show, but I would just say that uh, if you are experiencing difficulties with uh, speech, uh, drooling, or singing, uh, you should start singing every day, and that will help you. Sounds good. Yeah, well, another good way is just to talk to somebody across the room and just project your voice, because... I think the biggest problem is Parkinson's patients don't, don't project their voice. Right. So uh, there's good and bad to that. So, yes, project your voice. In other words, uh, making an attempt to uh, speak loud or louder is something uh, definitely worth rehearsing as well. But uh, speech alone, talking or speech alone, uses circuitry in the brain that is different from musicality. So the... The nice thing about music is that it takes advantage of the part of the brain that connects with emotions. So, for example, whenever you sing a patriotic song, like, for example, the national anthem, then you have a natural Im embedded feeling for patriotism that comes with it. Whenever you sing, the imagery that you have in your brain is a flag flying or saluting or... Uh, people marching past or whatever, some, some level of emotion that is attached to the song automatically comes with it. Or if you sing a old lullaby that you've heard from your grandmother or your mother singing to you, then the emotion that comes to your mind is your mom or grandma or grandpa or whoever. That individual's emotional content comes with it. Now, regular speech, depending on the context, uh, has very little emotion or a lot of emotion that comes that is unattached. In other words, you are creating that emotion right then, then and there. It's not a rehearsed piece of language or sound that comes with emotion. 
So because of the lack of emotion, the circuitry that you use in your brain is slightly different when you just talk or even recite. If you just recite, then it doesn't have the emotional content. Whereas if you, you sing, when you sing, you bring in that emotional content. That's why when somebody sings a song without emotion, it's pretty obvious to the audience. They feel like, oh, you're not feeling it. I don't feel it. And the singer is not feeling it. They're just singing it as if by rote. Whereas if you sing with emotion, you immediately have the feeling. You get the feeling and the person singing it has the feeling and the audience also has the feeling. And that emotional content actually helps overcome Parkinson's speech deficit because that is an automatic movement, an unrehearsed movement that comes in and that helps overcome some of the problems with Parkinson's disease speech production. So in a way, one of the ways in which we solve Parkinson's-related speech problems is to speak in sing-song way. In other words, an emotional type of content. And I think some of you, our listeners, may have noticed that, that when they become emotional, they're actually able to throw their voice. If they're angry, for example, they are able to bring out sound which is long, louder than what, what they are used to producing because for that fine moment when they're angry or upset, the words would come out a little stronger because of the emotional circuitry being involved. Same thing is true when you are happy, when you are in a gregarious mood, when you are in a big party and somebody is joking, you may be able to laugh loud, whereas when there's a little joke being said in a smaller um, uh, situation where it's just one-on-one or whatever, even if the emotion is there, it doesn't come out as gregariously, as, as loud as you want it to be. And this is well known. There's nothing unusual about it. This is part of the brain circuitry that's involved in speech and language, where emotional attachment makes it easier to overcome some of the obstacles to Parkinson's-related speech problems. I hope that makes sense. Yeah, it does. Uh, It gives another reason why you need to get out of the house, too. Right, right. So you can experience these things. Because if you're inside and just reading or trying to do some voice exercises, it's not going to work. Correct. Agreed. Yes. Good. I think that... uh, it's everything we wanted to talk about today. Yes. Well, it was a pleasure talking again, and thanks for inviting me and uh, for having a great show. Thanks, you too.